Thank you, Pastor. It's great to be back with you. I have a transparency with which you can identify. There's a fine line between a long sermon and a hostage situation. <laughs> I thought you might like that. You, you folks have witnessed, obviously, the last four years and even five years, a hatred of our President, President Trump. I appreciate your prayer. We should pray for all those in authority, and we'll talk about that passage in a little bit. But the sad thing is that in Europe, especially in my native country, Germany, they hate Trump more than Americans do, if you can believe that or not. I did something for a couple churches where I spoke recently. They wanted to know what's happening in Germany. So I put together a, a collage of the front page or the title co the cover of Germany's uh, foremost news magazine called Der Spiegel or The Mirror. And that's a highbrow magazine. It's a combination of Time and Newsweek, except it's a little, you know, uh, more highbrow. But this is what they picture our president as. Here he is seen, seen as a Ku Klux Klanner. Here he's seen as a wrecking crew, crushing everything, knocking everything down in our country. Here he's seen as a tidal wave, swallowing Washington, D.C., and all our institutions. Here he's seen as a warmonger with this little dictator from North Korea starting a hydrogen worm. Here he's seen as a depraved degenerate from mankind going down a devolution type. This one especially upset the people in England, the Daily Mail, because it shows him holding the head of the Statue of Liberty dripping with blood. Why would he do that? Because they say he's against immigr immigrants, okay? And here he is seen as a, an asteroid about to hit planet Earth. And the caption of under that is, the end of the world as we know it. So when I go to Germany, they don't have any conservative news outlets to speak of. There are a few blog sites, if you can find them. But I, I'm asked about our politics, and I said, I don't want to get into an argument with you, but let me tell you something. You are not being told the truth about America or about America's leadership by your press. They're rapidly anti-American. They are grateful that we rescue them twice from their own stupidity in World War I and World War II. Uh, but uh, they think that uh, what we have in the person we have in the White House is the, is the absolute worst person we could have. I was over there every summer, except, as I mentioned, they wouldn't let me go this past summer. But when I was there in, in uh, 2016, just before our election, I was in the home of one of my former uh, roommates when I attended the university there. And I had never met their daughter before. She was visiting. She was typing upstairs. I could hear her type. I said, why don't you have her come down and take her picture with my roommate and his wife so we could have a picture to commemorate our uh, meeting after many years. 
And so she came down, but in a very uncommon, harsh German way, before she took our picture, she said, I hope that neither you nor your relatives nor friends vote for President Trump. And I said, doch. Anyone who speaks German, doch. Yes, indeed, that's a doch. Let, and I said, let me explain to you why, and they were all ears. I said, um, since 1973, America has, the most, has had the most liberal <coughs> abortion laws of any country. And back then it was 55 million Americans, American children, American babies have been aborted. Okay, now we have two candidates in this election. Hillary Clinton was one of them, of course. I said, if I vote for one candidate, after four years, there'll be six million more dead Americans. If I vote for the other candidate, he is doing everything in his power to reduce the number of abortions and to put people on the Supreme Court that would be against that, against that freedom they found in the Constitution of a woman's right to her own body. She has a right to her own body, but not a right to the baby growing within her. So I said, okay, it's 55 million so far, six million more dead babies, or a reduction in number. Should I vote for life, or should I vote for death? She had nothing to say, and neither did my friend or his wife. I don't know what they thought about it, and I have not talked with them recently, but the same situation as this, this time, isn't it? If you are theologically attuned to know that the most priceless being in the universe next to God and his angels is man, Angels were never made in God's image, but we were. And the image begins already in con at conception, not somewhere along the gestation period. And God in Genesis 9 verse 6 said, if you destroy somebody's life, you have forfeited your life. Why? Because that person was made in God's image. We don't have any correct understanding, I think, how important God's image is. And if you eliminate a life, you're eliminating someone in God's image. So that makes, in my thinking, abortion the number one issue. You don't need to know about any other such issues like immigration and, and um, the economy and um, tight borders and, you know, on and on, on good jobs if you know what is at issue. So I'm sure you'll follow your uh, theological instincts. And I want to ask and answer the question, how can we help America? Because for many years, for many years, America has been on a downward spiral, at least everybody thinks so. But here's a transparency, America has fallen from grace. Is the United States about to join the Roman Empire as a historical lesson of inevitable rise and fall? People that ask these questions and answer it yes or probably 
don't know what we talked about, those biblical principles, in the Sunday school because there are things true in our nation that are not true in the background of any other nation. Now, I'm not blinded to what's wrong with America. I think even we people who live out in Iowa in the heartland, flyover country as the liberals call it, know that there's not everything right with America. But the fact of the matter is a country or shall we say a government, is God's institution. God ordained three institutions for mankind to regulate their life. The family, remember Genesis 2, the man shall leave his wife, or shall leave his parents and cling to his wife. The church, the local church, instituted on the day of Pentecost, the universal church, and government. God has special responsibilities for each. The home has been established to reflect Christ's love, to rear children, to replenish the earth, the church, to edify the saints, to evangelize sinners, and to exalt the Savior. And human government, there are three main biblical reasons why a government should function in a certain way. To protect the good, to punish the evildoers, and to preserve law and order. And the Roman Empire did that in a measure. And so Paul could write to Timothy and say, pray for all in authority that you may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Now the fact of the matter is we have conferences in our churches, I'm sure on the East Coast, as we do in the Midwest, conferences to help the family to help children, and rightly so, family life conferences, and then conferences on church and church growth, principles that will help our local church or our family. But rarely, if ever, do you have a conference that accents the importance of biblical principles in relation to government or to our country. So let me turn with you to page um, eight. Actually, we'll use page nine, where I already gave, gave away all my main points for our short message. I hope we'll be done by three o'clock. No, there's a trap door that opens here. How can we help America? We can help America by being informed individuals, discerning disciples, praying patriots, committed citizens, and spiritual saints. In 1 Chronicles 12, one of those remote Old Testament passages, we have a special group mentioned who came and switched from Saul's army to David's army because Saul had forfeited his kingdom through his rebellion and disobedience. And so Samuel anointed David, right? Remember that? He was the least of, of Jesse's sons. He was out in, with the flock. He anointed him as king. And people in Israel were so aware of what was going on that God had taken his favor away from that person and put on this person. These people changed. And there's a special group mentioned 
They have forever a place of prominence in God's word. Of the children of Issachar, which were men that had understanding of the times, to know what Israel ought to do, and the heads of, heads of them were 200, and all their brethren were their commandment. The leaders of one of the larger tribes in Israel, maybe the very largest, 200 leaders, and everything, everyone followed them. And they did what? They defected from Saul's army to David's army. They didn't have elections in those days. What if Saul had caught them? They would have been killed instantly. But instead, they were willing to take a stand for, for their convictions. And so, what can we do on page 10 for our country? We can be informed individuals, like the men of Issachar. They had, first of all, a comprehension of the conditions. I think you have your televisions, your newspapers. You're well informed what's going on. Maybe not as well as we should be, but uh, as I drove down here with my cousin this morning, I saw a lot, a lot of Black Lives Matter signs. We hardly see any out in Iowa, but this is a free country. You can put up any sign you want to. But those, don't those people know that two dyed-in-the-wool communists, Marxists, who went by their admission to Marxist school, started that? Do they want to, this country to be communist? I'm not sure how well these people are informed. But I think we ought to inform ourselves, no matter what, what the election is. Uh, God doesn't put a premium on ignorance. Sometimes we're, we're told that the Christians are too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. I think it's rather the other way around, don't you? Uh, we are too earthly minded to be much heavenly good. There are <laughs> cartoons of the uninformed Americans. This is one of my favorite. They're carrying a sign, imbeciles of America upside down and the wrong side facing. But we know what's going on in, in the United States and in France and in Europe with the um, COVID-19 and so on. The guy on the park bench reads, says, says, oh boy, it's a terrible thing to know what's going on in the world and not to understand it. You and I as Christians are the only one who can understand it because we know the major thrust of end time events. This world is not going to explode uh, through some kind of accident in a nuclear, a nuclear holocaust. We know exactly what will happen. Nation states will still be around in the tribulation and Antichrist is going to govern a confederacy of 10 nations, what used to be the old Roman Empire. And then there are other nations, Egypt and Russia and, and Iran and others that play a part in the future. But I think it's well, it's important. When I taught at Faith Baptist Bible College, I taught a class, I had to work it up from scratch, called American Heritage. They wanted me to give the kids fresh out of high school, secular high school, an appreciation for their country. And maybe remarkable to ask an East German who went through a communist school system to tell Americans about their country, but I, I love America, as I said, in the first hour. 
And I told my students they had to read a variety of newspapers. Back then, the New Hampshire Union Leader was a conservative paper, had a very conservative editorial policy. We had, from time to time, we had a speaker in chapel at Faith Baptist who said, and that sounded so spiritual, he, he was never going to read a newspaper or a magazine. He just wanted to read his Bible more and more. I appreciate that. We ought to read the Bible more and more. Uh, you probably have a Bible reading schedule here. Dr. Nettleton, who used to pastor this church when I arrived on these shores, had a Bible reading schedule in our school, reprints that every year. I find it very easy to do three chapters a day and five on Sunday, and that brings you through the Bible. And unless you do that once a year, you sort of lose mastery of some of the especially obscure Old Testament passages. But especially come election time, we ought to be able to take a stand. It's a matter of choice. And way back when, like four years ago, we had all these issues. And it shouldn't take long for a Christian to decide which side he was on, on abortion, an infanticide, and I mentioned that to my friend in Germany. I said, one of these candidates is not just for late-term abortions, but she wants to have infants killed if they survive an abortion attempt. Well, they hadn't heard about that, of course. Their news media doesn't tell them that. Radical Islam, pornography, profanity, and truthfulness So you, if you haven't voted, because I would be out here for this Sunday, I already voted back in Iowa, but I didn't have that much trouble deciding to whom to vote. At the very end, I stuck in two pages because I made reference to them. If you want to know what the issues are on abortion for each candidate, you just read that. Maybe you, you think of another major issue, but I don't know if anything is greater than persons being eliminated from this planet who are made in the image of God. If you want to keep up with the abortion situation and the horrific uh, statistics, you can go, and this is the very last page that's stuck in your manual, to numberofabortions.com, and while you're on that website, it shows how many people are aborted, and usually you're on there for five minutes or whatever, there's another 10 or 15 or 20 aborted. In the United States, since 1973, 62 million, 60, by Planned Parenthood, 8,923,000. That's not somebody's opinion, these are the statistics. And I think we ought to be attentive to that and then use Biblical principles on which we base our election. Like I said, I already voted, and you might guess for whom I voted, but uh, everybody knows what's going on in our country, that we have the most liberal abortion laws. There's a second passage of scripture, what we can do for our country. That's based on Matthew chapter 16, the Pharisees with the Sadducees. They were enemies. Remember, the Sadducees didn't believe in what? The spirit world and angels? 
and the resurrection from the dead, but they got together to do something, to tempt Jesus Christ, to bring him to some kind of a, a bring him in a difficult situation. They wanted to know if he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said unto them, what it is, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning, it will be foul weather, today, for the sky is red and lowering. Oh, you hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky, but can you not discern the signs of the times? A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given unto it, but the sign of the prophet Jonah, and that's three days and three nights, he was in the fish. Christ was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, in the tomb, and he left them and departed. Indirectly, indirectly, I think he's also criticizing his disciples. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus Christ elicits from the disciples their first confession of faith in him. It was Peter, remember, who said, thou art the Christ, what? The son of the living God, very good, okay? And then Christ said, okay, we need to go to Jerusalem now. They were as far north in Israel as they possibly could go. And the next six months, they traveled slowly, ever so slowly, to Jerusalem, to his crucifixion. But when he said, I must go to Jerusalem, I will suffer many things, I'll die, I'll be put to death, and I'll raise, rise again the third day from the dead. They all said, blessed be the Lord, we knew that from the Old Testament. Is that what happened? Peter literally took a hold of him and tried to shake the living daylights out of him. The Greek text is very strong on that. Not so, Lord. And so Christ said to the first pope, get thee behind me, Satan. Because what Peter, what Peter said was the idea that Satan put in his mind. He didn't want Christ to die because when Christ died on the cross, Satan's tomb, tomb was sealed. Incident. I love that uh, acrostic back there. Amazing grace. I noticed that. This one is beautifully done. But Christ offered his grace to all to believe in him for salvation. But the disciples didn't believe it. And the tragic thing is all the next six months while they went to Jerusalem in Luke chapter 9 and other passages, he told them about his death, burial, and resurrection. They didn't believe it. They didn't understand it. And none dared ask him, what are you talking about? You know, his enemies were the only ones who believed what he said. Because when he died, what did they say? Hey, this guy said he'd be raised the third day from the dead. So we'll put a stone there, a seal, and some Roman soldiers. The disciples didn't believe, even when the women came said, we've seen the resurrected Lord. They were in Mark 16 in the upper room, weeping and wailing. Okay. We ought to be discerning disciples. They couldn't figure out the times of this, the signs of the times in his day. They should have known, as I indicate, that the Messiah was at hand. Because in Genesis 3.15, Messiah would be of the human race. In Genesis 22.18, he would be of the nation of Israel. 
in 2 Samuel 7, he would be, well, Genesis 49, 10, would be of the tribe of Judah, uh, nation of Israel. He would be of the family of David, 2 Samuel 7. And only one person in the family of David would be suitable to give birth to the Messiah. That was Isaiah 7, 14, right? Who was that? A virgin. And then you had the town mentioned in Micah 5, 2, right? O Bethlehem of Judah. And then you had the time mentioned. If they understood Daniel chapter 9, the Messiah would be cut off in the year, I think it was AD 32, okay? That's when he died. So when the wise men came to Jerusalem and the scribes and the Christian spiritual leaders, not Christian leaders, spiritual leaders had to give an answer, where is he that is born a king of the Jews? The wise men wanted to know. The, the scribes and the Pharisees said, Bethlehem, Bethlehem. Okay, how far is Bethlehem south of Jerusalem? Anybody here been to the Holy Land recently? No? You have a wonderful experience out of you. They have the country closed right now, but I hope to host one more tour uh, going to Israel. I've been over there over 40 times. I've lost uh, count, but it's a wonderful country. And everybody, no matter whether he's a believer or unbeliever, when they, the plain lands in Israel, you have a feeling as you're finally coming home, as if that is where you belong. But at any rate, four miles south of Jerusalem is Bethlehem. And when the wise men didn't come back to Jerusalem, nobody, Herod didn't, and none of this, these, these wise men went four miles to see what had been born there, which the wise men, which the wise men from the east saw. In our day and age, there are other signs of the times. Christ's second coming is close. And as you know, there are two facets to his second coming. This is not a session on prophecy, but I think you're well conversant in prophetic truth. Just to mention seven signs of the times briefly, you don't have to have an Israel in the land till after the rapture. You don't. And yet since 1948, there's been a nation over there by the name of Israel. You don't have to have a union of all the churches till the tribulation when all the Christians are gone and all the religious uh, Roman Catholicism, apostate Protestantism, and the non-Christian religions will unite. You don't have to have a union of Western Europe, and ever since Greece joined the European Union, uh, you've had 10 nations, now it's up to 27, but it could be reduced any day over which Antichrist will rule. In the middle of the tribulation period, Russia attacks Israel. And what is Russia doing right now? They have a seaport and an airbase just north of Israel. And all along, they've given untold amounts of armaments to the Arabs surrounding Israel, who thus far have made a, uh, issued a proxy war against Israel, but someday, at Gog and Magog, Ezekiel 38 and 39, they're going to invade. And it's Putin over there, the former KGB agent, they say, once KGB, always KGB, who regrets the fact, he said, they 
decline of communism last century was the greatest evil, the greatest I issue of the last century. He wants to rebuild his empire. Then you have the explosion of globalism. One person somewhere can control all the economy on earth. And that's what will happen in the tribulation, of course, when Antichrist from whatever that Babylon is in Revelation chapter 18 is controlling commerce. And if you don't have his mark on the hand or the forehead, you can't buy or sell. And then you have a United Nations. They claim to be a one world government. You don't have that till the last three and a half years of the tribulation. The first three and a half years, Antichrist controls 10 nations, a 10 nation confederacy. The last three and a half years is a world dictator. But he's never quite successful of being, uh, of controlling the whole world because there's an army, I think it's probably the Chinese from the East, according to Revelation 9.16, they number 200 million, they're coming. And you look at the last verse of Daniel 11, Antichrist goes out, he conquers 200 million, and then it says, yet he shall come to his end and shall, none shall help him. And you have to wait all the way till the end of the first New Testament, first century, about AD 100, to find out in the book of Revelation, Revelation 19, verse 20, that Antichrist and the false prophet are plopped by the returning Savior, a life into the lake of fire. So you have all these things shaping up now. These events are casting their long shadows. I'm far from predicting when these things will come to fruition, but I know there's never been a time in history when all these signs of the times were joining together. So what do you and I do? We look ahead to the next event. There's nothing that needs to happen between now and the rapture. Then we'll go with Christ to heaven, and seven years later, we'll come back with him to reign and to rule. Okay, moving on to the next page and the next issue. What can I do for my country? I can be a praying patriot. There's a passage to which I referred earlier. Paul is writing to his son in the faith, Timothy. And he says, I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Hold it, Paul. If I prayed for all men, Timothy would be saying, I could never eat, I could never sleep. I don't know all the people. There, there probably weren't that many, maybe 13 million on earth in the first century. We are not sure just how many people there, there were. Uh, but Paul says, okay, at the very top of your prayer list for kings and for all that in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. If there's anything that you and I can do for our country, even if, if no one else does it, but you or you or I do it, and that would really help, is to pray. The effectual fervent prayer, I quote James here, the effectual fervent prayer 
of a righteous, large denomination, large righteous individual avails much. People think that's a quotation from the Bible, but it's Alfred Lord Tennyson, whom I quote in his um, poem, The Passing of Arthur, who said, more things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. Do you want our nation to turn around to face God again? Don't give up on Uncle Sam. I like to remind people of what happened in Europe on November 10th, 1989. What happened? The Iron Curtain came down. How? Not a shot being fired. How did it happen? I can give you a website where you can read a lengthy article I wrote for the Baptist Bulletin on that, the untold story of the collapse of communism. Every Monday night for several years, people gathered to pray in the city of Leipzig in a large church, and the pastor, I finally met him, a very humble man, had a prayer meeting. And they prayed because in 1989, Germany was celebrating its 40th anniversary. It became a communist nation in 1949. And the people wandered out. That summer, you may remember, some 89,000 people left from East Germany by way of the Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia then, Austria, and the Austrians had used wire cutters to open the fence. Austrians did that. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Hungarians to the border of Austria. And people drove there with their miserable little cars, the little Trabant, maybe you've seen picture, uh, heart, you know, it's with a lawnmower engine and they call it the car of the philosopher because you think you have a car um, <laughs> when you have a crash at an intersection of two of those cars. You have a Tupperware party. But uh, I kid you not, you, you mechanics would be interested that in that, those cars. My brother drove one. Everybody drove one. It's the only car you could get. Had to wait 20 years to get it. But with American money, they had it in three weeks. And we were able to supply many pastors with vehicles because most of them had three or four congregations. Okay. Um, with, with, these, with these cars, you, you could um, go around and, and meet the responsibility in the churches. And in, they drove these little cars for which they 20, waited 20 years on the Hungarian-Austrian border, left them there. That became the greatest parking lot. And they just walked across to Austria, went back to West Germany, and then flew to West Berlin, over 118 miles of East German territory, to be close to their loved ones. But there was the wall. But every Monday night, people were praying there. And they said, if the Lord doesn't answer our prayers by next Monday, we'll gather here. And as they finished the prayer meeting, they had candles. And they walked the inner ring of the city of Leipzig. And then they brought the candles back. My brother-in-law happened to be there on business in one of those Monday nights. And he said, there must have been 500,000 people. They spilled out in the public arena square, and there's another church about a 
an eighth of a mile away, and they had these prayer meetings. And the communists were planning to do them in. And when they went to the church at that one Monday night, the first Monday night in October of 79, they saw the Russian troops, the East German paratroopers, East German troops, tanks and armed personnel carriers, close a ring around those tens of thousands of people. And they knew they would never leave alive. And people had been told that all the meat lockers in Leipzig were emptied and they were putting wooden coffins, 10,000 wooden coffins in there. I have friends in Leipzig who told us that. So it's not just hearsay, they actually live there. And yet when the prayer meeting was over, something happened. Those troops had moved away. They had a, a command from Berlin, from the East German government, to shoot to kill. And someone in Leipzig, maybe three hours by car south, someone in Leipzig countermanded that order, offer, that order. And to this day, it's not known who canceled that. You don't normally uh, cancel a command from the Politburo in Berlin. And the next day, Germany had another chancellor or another president, the communist president, one who was less notorious than the one they had, Honecker. And then just a short while later, November 9th, a man from the Politburo was reading an announcement, and he didn't read the backside. It said, as of midnight tonight, anybody who wishes to leave could leave no matter for what length of time. In the back it said, providing you first go to the police and get a passport and blah, blah. You know, it would take weeks of time. But he didn't say that. And some a reporter asked him, are you saying starting now? He looked around to his colleagues who had sat in that session. He said, yeah, I guess. So 2,000 young people walked toward the wall and the border guards, East German border guards, fran frantically called their commander. The Russian commander couldn't be reached because his car telephone was not working. The East German commander couldn't be reached, so one of the lesser uh, commanders of the border patrol said, instead of saying firing, fire, step aside, without a single shot being fired. And within a matter of days, the whole Iron Curtain unraveled, right? November 9th or 10th, and then Czechoslovakia, December 23rd, and all these satellite countries became free. Why? I don't know why God's time had come, but people prayed. And I say it's a primarily a result of prayer. So you, you and I have prayed for freedom for these people for all these years. Why did it God take 40 years? I have no idea. But I do know that his timing is perfect. And even if no one prays for our country here, but you do, God might be pleased to answer our prayers. There's a second thing we should do, not just prayer, but praise. Exhort that prayers be made for all that are in authority and 
the passage says, giving of thanks. I used to speak in John Birch Society meetings, and they're very patriotic, at least they were. I haven't been to one recently. And as patriotic as they were, I never heard them thank God for the president or for the leadership. They always suspected, like Eisenhower was a card-carrying communist, they used to say, Robert Welch, you know. But you have to be not just a praying patriot, but a praising patriot. Thank God for the country you have. I know there are lots of people who hate America. There's a whole party that wants to undo what our founding fathers did. But the fact is you pray to God that he would keep our nation free and strong. And then you praise God for what you have. I mentioned how our nation is unique spiritually. I don't know of a single other nation that calls for a day of prayer. When Apollo 13, do you remember Apollo 13? Was speeding toward the moon and an accident blew out the side of the space vehicle. We feared for the life of our astronauts because when they went circumnavigate around the moon, they might not come back. You may not remember that, but some of us old timers do. And what, what happened? Richard Milhouse Nixon called on, a, on us for a day of prayer and fasting. I don't remember whether I fasted or not, but I know I prayed, and we prayed as a congregation, and God answered our prayers. You all know the Old Testament passage of 2 Chronicles 7:14, right? If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray, then once in a while, if I feel like it, I'll answer their prayers. Is that what the writers know? I'll hear if it is within his will. And if our prayers are not within God's will, then in, according to Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit prays alongside of us. He offers requests, and he straightens out our prayers. So the requests are according to God's will. So just keep praying and praising, because that is pleasing to the Lord. couple more points. Very short phrase in 1 Peter 2, 17, on page 13. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, the last phrase, honor the king. That's different from praying for him. The king is the absolute final authority of the country. Honoring the king involves respecting of the highest ruler of the land because he represents what? Law and order. Ignoring the ruler does not imply that we, honoring the ruler does not imply that we necessarily approve of his personal decorum with his political or with his political decisions. However, it does involve respect for his authority. He represents the law of the land. Honor is to him because he is God's appointment. Romans 13, 1. We never dare forget that. What does it say? 
the powers that are ordained of God. And as you mentioned in your prayer this morning, too, whoever the Lord puts into office is put in by the Lord. But we have every right to pray as we see fit according to his scriptural principles that murder on infants be reduced by having individuals on the Supreme Court that are pro-life. Okay, the responsibility of the ruler, I mention it again, is to punish the evildoers, to protect the good, and to preserve order. Apart from Portland and Philadelphia in recent days and some of those other cities, the country has been relatively um, tranquil compared to other nations. It's not always good to compare our country to other countries, but the authority in our nation has worked pretty well. So what can I do for my country? I, can, I should have respect for the government's authority and secondly, repudiate our anarchy. And when I see these hoodlums go through towns, smashing businesses, especially business of minorities, I say, where is the government that's supposed to function? They're supposed to keep order, punish the evil, and protect the good. And in some cities, that is not happening. So I need to pray all the harder. Just go to one other point of the outline. On page 14, what can we do for our country? We can be spiritual saints. I think most of you know the, the Proverbs 14 passage. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a roach reproach to any people. about that with me for a second. Uh, so the United States is righteous. Mexico and Canada are unrighteous. Guatemala is righteous. Uh, Peru is unrighteous. No, there's no such thing as a national righteousness, is there? What is righteousness? Righteousness is a right relationship to God when he imputes no guilt to the sinner. The minute that you and I realize we cannot save ourselves, but this is why Christ came, and we trust in him, two things happen. He takes our sin from us. There's therefore now no condemnation to them who in Christ Jesus. And secondly, he declares us righteous. We still sin every day, and we need to confess and forsake these sins. But as far as the Judgment in God's presence is concerned. We'll never be judged because Christ bore our sins. So if righteousness exalts a nation, that seems to indicate that what exalts a nation is individuals who are righteous, individuals who are saved. And in America, you have, as I suggested earlier, 
probably 80% or more of the world's born-again Christians. And that righteousness exalts our nation. And we are the seasoning influence in America, whether we realize it or not. This congregation and others scattered throughout the United States. I mentioned probably 17 million fundamental churches. Maybe I said 7 million. I meant 17 million this morning. When we moved, as I said earlier, to the small town of Bondurant, where we live, my wife and I were home, and we heard a loud bang. And we looked out the front door, and there's insulation from a neighbor's house uh, diagonally across the block, floating in all directions. And I quickly hurried over to see what had happened. Up the corner, two houses, the third house down. The whole house was destroyed, except the people happily were not home. And the only thing that was not destroyed was the kitchen table and an open Bible on the kitchen table. What a testimony to the whole town. God spared their life. These people had had their, an elderly man and woman, their family devotions in the morning, and God had spared their life. And then the lady across the street is a Christian, a lady around the other corner. And I think they're more believers than we realize. They're not all taking stand for the Lord. And people ought to know when they're around us that we are believers. But if we are people of righteousness, God will continue to exalt our nation. And then something else. As I indicate on the second point, if unrighteousness exalts, an, if it should be righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to it, then the more righteous individuals live in a nation, the greater God's blessings on that nation will be. Spiritual saints bring God's blessings on a nation. The greater their number, the more bountiful is God's blessings. Do we want God to exalt America? Then let us be men and women of righteousness ourselves. Let us also be messengers of reconciliation. As others respond to the gospel, and that's one reason why this congregation exists, right? To do what? To honor the Lord, to share the gospel, and to increase the word of God throughout the country and throughout the world. As others respond to the gospel, they too will belong to the host of righteous individuals for whose sake God will exalt nations and in the most marvelous way has especially exalted our nation, the United States of America. George Everett Hale said it well, I think. I'm only one man, but I am one man. I can't do everything, but I can do something. And what I can do, I ought to do. What I ought to do, by the grace of God, I will do. So start with one of these principles. Obviously, you're informing yourself in time for your vote on Tuesday. You're discerning the signs of the times. Your local church helps you through that. Hopefully, you're a praying patriot. And you're committed to the law of land. Respect our government's authority and repudiate all anarchy. And then live the Christian life. And God will continue to honor you to bless you, your family, and your nation.